Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. But there also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. For well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that combines military, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. People all over this country are wondering whether or not this great country is evolving into an oligarchic society. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs, that order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereignty. Now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order, and today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Hello and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and I will be your host as we dive into a controversial topic of the idea that the philosophies of libertarianism and free market economics can be used as a tool for control of the masses, falling in line with more of a globalist kind of new world order, great reset type of agenda. In the past, I have talked about libertarianism and free market economics and anarcho-capitalism as all positive things, and I am generally a proponent for liberty. And I would actually probably say not just generally, I am, without reservation, a proponent of liberty for all individuals. And because of this, I feel that I should probably point out some of these aspects that I will be talking about today. I have also talked about the idea of a new world order back in the corruption and conspiracy episodes and Fabian socialism, that kind of stuff. And more recently, I've talked about the Great Reset and technocracy. But all of this really can be lumped into one category that just goes by many different names with many different flavors but it's all generally the same thing. You could call it the globalist agenda or Fabian socialism or the new world order or technocracy or sustainable development or the great reset or whatever. But no matter what you call it, it is collectivism. It is an elitist utopia brought about through social engineering and technology. That is the goal. It is a goal that has a long history and that is being worked on by many people with a lot of power behind the scenes over a long time horizon. Some of this does involve corruption and conspiracy, and some of this is just out in the open. Some of this is just the way people believe their own political philosophy and morality. I hope by this point in the podcast, I don't have to give these disclaimers, but I will give it anyway for any newcomers, that basically there are conspiracies behind the scenes. There are elitists that want to rule the world and all this stuff that you would think came straight out of a Bond film. This stuff is real life to a degree. There are also plenty of these aspects that take place in the general public, in the public eye. And it's not necessarily that there's this secret cabal running the entire world and behind every single throne and altar. That's not necessarily how it is. There are definitely power players. There are definitely states involved and governments involved, as well as corporations involved and nonprofits involved. Lots of different institutions and individuals that are involved in pushing society towards these utopian goals. And they don't always agree with each other. It's not necessarily that they're all going for the exact same thing. Again, they're going for different flavors of the same general philosophy and idea. But that does mean there's competition. That does mean that some will stab others in the back. That does mean that this is probably not some grand, organized, ultra-hierarchical conspiracy. 
It's just that there are plenty of people, and the ones that count from this context would be those with power and control and influence, but there are plenty of people that just truly believe that the world would be a better place, society would be better if you had people of greater merit at the top directing the masses who were of lesser merit and dictating how they should and shouldn't live, how to allocate resources, how to improve technology and genetics and all these things. There are people that just believe that this is the best for the human race as a whole. And because of that, there are these agendas and this is a real thing. The second disclaimer I will give is that this is one of the last or possibly the last episode in this interim series between season two and season three. I will get to season three. That's about to happen. And this is part of a group of episodes that are a little bit random. I've hit lots of different topics from cryptocurrency to investing to homesteading to who knows what, all kinds of stuff, COVID-19, all the different things. And that has been what I've been doing. It's not as structured. I am not going off of copious amounts of notes and research. I'm basically going off of my own opinions, my own ideas, things that I've run across, very rough outline sketch of what I'm going to go over that I have on paper that I'm referencing. But in general, this is not the same format as most of the show. And as I get into season three, that will become obvious if you haven't listened to season one and two, at least. But just to give that disclaimer, that's where we are in this podcast. And this series will be ending up possibly with this episode, possibly with another. And we'll jump into season three and get a little more structured with a very specific outline and order to the episodes. So let's go ahead and just dig in. And I want to start off with how I came up with these ideas. How did these thoughts enter my mind? Well, the main thing that really caught my attention were two individuals that are very big for the liberty movement, Austrian economics specifically, and that would be Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek. Now, both of them should sound familiar to you. I have done an episode on Austrian economics where I mentioned both of them. But there are a few things that over the years when I've done research on Austrian economics and these people specifically have stood out to me. And that is their connections to things that I have also ran across in my research. But when I've been researching other topics like Fabian socialism, for example, or the corruption and conspiracy involved with the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rockefeller family... And it kind of always threw up a red flag, but I never really isolated that and figured out what that was. And I still don't know if I have, but that's where this idea came from. I heard a reference to this more recently on the Grand Theft World podcast. That's the one by Richard Grove that I have mentioned before on this show. I'm a big fan of the Peace Revolution podcast that Richard Grove did that was a lot of the beginnings of my research and digging into these types of topics. But they have a newer one, uh, the Grand Theft World podcast, and it's really good. They've got a lot of good content. They'll play clips. They'll discuss it. They'll look at context. And so long as you are up for a long form podcast that might be three hours long, uh, at least they're not as long as some of the longer Peace Revolution episodes of 13, 15 hours or something crazy. But it's a very good one. And I heard a reference on there recently about Hayek and his connections to tutoring David Rockefeller. And that piqued my interest again. And I'm not sure why, but for some reason, the wheels started turning in my head. And I was thinking back on some of the other things that stood out to me related to that. And that's where all this started. So for some more historical context, when Ludwig von Mises came to America to teach, and he is one of the probably most looked up to figures in Austrian economics. But when he came over, he came over under a grant from guess who? Guess who paid for him to come to America and spread these ideas in America? The Rockefeller Foundation. Well, yes. And probably the second biggest name in Austrian economics would be Frederick Hayek. And with him, he taught at the London School of Economics. And if you remember back to previous episodes, that was started by Fabian Socialists as a Fabian Socialist institution. So there are some question marks there. But even beyond that, guess who was one of his students? David Rockefeller, who ended up actually being tutored by Hayek. Hayek took him under his wing specifically, talked about how much promise that Rockefeller had, and all of these things. So 
there are some connections here. Now, that's just very brief and just highlighting a few aspects. But the point is there are some clear connections between these institutions and these players that would be involved with what I mentioned earlier, this kind of globalist agenda, the New World Order, whatever, between Rockefeller, the Fabian Socialists, the London School of Economics, these different connections, and some of the biggest names in libertarianism and Austrian economics between Hayek and Mises. And so while I do look up to the ideas of Hayek and Mises specifically, I like Mises better than Hayek personally, but I, I do like their ideas. I am not in disagreement with them, and I am not saying that libertarianism should be disavowed by all and that that is a defunct belief. No, that's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that the idea of having free markets is a bad idea. I think that is a great idea. I am not saying that anarcho-capitalism would never work. I still believe that it would work better than what we have now. And I mentioned that in my anarcho-capitalism episodes that I did earlier, I think at the end of season one. And so I... I don't want you to get the wrong idea that I'm saying that these concepts and philosophies and ideas are bad. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be looked up to. I'm not saying that they are immoral. What I am saying is that they do have plenty of connections and can be used as tools and as roads to this idea of a new world order. And that's what I want to talk about here. So I'll start off by giving kind of an overview, setting the stage of how things really work in the world. And that will lead us right to how the ideas of free markets, libertarianism, these types of ideas can fit into that to promote the agenda that many people who want this elitist utopia, this technocracy, that's how a lot of them believe and that's what they want. And these concepts of libertarianism and free markets and these types of things fit right into allowing that to happen with the will of the people. And it's just really interesting how it all plays out. So let's start off at the most basic level. If you are an elitist, you are an intellectual, you believe that you probably know better than the masses in general, and that you think that the masses would be better off, society would be better off, the human race would be better off if you or people like you had more say in how society was run and how people were directed, these types of things. That is who you are. Put yourself in those shoes. You are an elitist from this perspective. Now, what is your biggest problem? That would be the masses. The masses could be a threat. If the masses were to rise up against you, even if you had this perfect utopia, then you would be screwed. You can reference the politics of obedience or many other books and resources for why and how that would happen. But the point is that you don't want that to happen. And so what is your answer? Your answer is mainly propaganda. Because you know that if you rule strictly by force and by fear, the masses will inevitably, historically, always rise up against you at some point. That is not a good long-term solution. And even before they rise up against you, it's just a lot harder to manage. People are a lot harder to manage. You have individuals that lash out, that won't follow orders. You have rebellions. You have all these things. And why would you ever want to deal with that? It's so much easier if you can get the masses on board with your idea. So the solution and the answer is propaganda, mostly. And with this, you could look at things like the Delphi method, where you bring things down to a local level and start different initiatives and you get people on board and you get them to think that it is their idea. It's like, hey, do you like the idea of stopping global warming and, you know, this little local council meeting together in a local downtown room? Well, of course, agree. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, what are some of the issues that you think are very important? And they would say, oh, well, you know, we need to take care of the environment or there would be a big economic impact from the climate changing so rapidly and natural disasters. And, you know, they'll list off these different things. And, oh, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. And we are in total agreement. That is why we would propose this idea in our local area to help promote these ideas of fighting climate change and, you know, blah, 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 sustainable development, smart cities, everything else. And so that is a method that uh, 
is effective and has been used and is being used right now. And that's a form of propaganda to get people on board personally, where they come out of that meeting thinking, man, they actually did listen to some of our ideas and their policies really are right in line with what we want to accomplish too. And I'm totally on board with this. I want to support this to the the greatest degree that I can. And that gets the masses in general on board. Or it is a technique to get the masses in general on board. So that's one method. You've got something like representative democracy as a whole, where people think that they have a big say in the government because they have a vote in who represents them in that government and helps make decisions. But in reality, they are just electing a representative. That representative never will be able to truly represent every single person that voted for them. Never. It just can't happen. It's not possible. But at least the voters feel like they have a say. They feel like they are being represented. They feel like it's a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and therefore they're on board with it. Even when that government is constantly doing things that the voters don't agree with and that go against what the voters want to do. Well, at least we don't live in a dictatorship and this isn't Nazi Germany. We have a democracy and we have a say in our government. And yeah, you get the point here. Well, what's another technique? You could have something like Hegelian dialectic, where you look at that format of problem reaction solution. You want to push the people towards a solution. So you figure out what would have to shift in order for people to be on board with this? Because currently they're not. They don't want to be ruled over by a technocratic elite. But if the having a technocratic elite were the answer to a specific crisis or problem, and that seemed like the best route, then the masses, of course, would be totally on board with that. So what problem would you need in order to cause that reaction among the masses so that they are down with your solution? And that's the whole problem-reaction-solution. Hegelian dialectic, uh, I've talked about that many times in other episodes. And that is related to some degree to another technique, and that would just be of fear. As long as people are scared and they view their government or the state or the organization that is above them, the hierarchy, whatever, they view that as something that will keep them safe, that will keep the boogeyman away, that will keep these horrible terrorists or viruses or whatever it is, the the enemy on the other side of the sea who's going to come and attack them or drop bombs on them or whatever it is. We've had many different examples throughout history. But as long as society as a whole is scared of these things, then they can view the government, the state, the technocratic elite, whoever, as the solution to keeping their fears at bay and keeping their fears from becoming realized. So fear can be a very good propagandistic technique here. But the point is that all of these different methods of, I'm calling it loosely propaganda, they all create a false sense of control by the masses. The masses feel like they are the ones that are in control. They feel like because they elected somebody, because they agree with certain local initiatives, because they have seen a solution to their problems and have demanded it, and it actually happened. They think that they are the ones that are in control. And I am saying that that is a false sense of control. Yes, to a degree, the will of the people has been realized. But if the will of the people has been totally manipulated, then is it truly the will of free people? Or is it just the will of the masses that has been propagandized and directed towards a certain goal? That is up to you to determine. And that does depend on the historical context. Sometimes it is truly the will of the people, and sometimes it is truly the will of the people through propaganda and controlled by others. So if we look at these others a little more closely, you put yourselves back in the shoes of the elitist that wants to control society because you believe that you know what's best for the human race better than the dumb masses do. And so meanwhile, you have this ruling class that works behind the scenes. The question to consider is how do they work behind the scenes? And I've again, I've talked about all this stuff on previous episodes, but I'm wrapping all this together for this one argument, and I think it really connects very well here. So please keep with me here. And so how do these elitists work behind the scenes and work to control and steer a society? Well, 
it's not just through the state. Yes, they use governmental roles, they use politics, they use the state to a degree to push their goals and agendas. And you could look at something like the investigation into the nonprofits and how they influenced the American government, and there are plenty of examples in plenty of other countries and time periods. But the point is that, yes, the government is a tool to be used for these things. You could use something like the CIA and Project Mockingbird, where they deliberately and actively were taking over, basically giving the news to the masses and controlling what news the masses would hear and who was presenting this news and these types of things. And that was all controlled by the CIA. You also have, going back even further than that, J.P. Morgan buying up newspapers and controlling public opinion that way which would then lead me to the next way to influence things, and that would be through the media just as a whole. You can use the media just like J.P. Morgan did to achieve your goals of steering people and getting people to think a certain way. Another way that I mentioned just a second ago was foundations. You can use nonprofit foundations or you can use think tanks to start initiatives, to do things around the world, to have connections and relationships with governments and these nonprofit foundations. It's not a government, so it's not like you're accountable to the people. You are this nonprofit that you're actually you're a good person. You're a philanthropist. You are trying to do good for the world. Look at the Gates Foundation and how many people they vaccinated around the world and how many lives they've saved. And we can just ignore all the times when those vaccination campaigns actually killed people and maimed them and whole countries that want Bill Gates in jail. But uh, we'll, we'll ignore that for now and just say great philanthropist and wonderful foundation that's doing the best for the world. And so that's the point. Foundations. We've covered the Rockefeller Foundation so many times. They just keep popping up. But these are other tools. What are some other tools? You can have NGOs just in general, non-governmental organizations. You can have corporations. Oftentimes, corporations are used for pushing certain agendas. Look at the censorship that we are witnessing right now on places like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and you could say that that would be a branch of the media. You could also say that that's a private corporation that is having an influence on the masses. Even just the algorithms of what people see when they search for something on Google, that is a lot of influence and that is true influence that is had on the masses. If you take all of these different institutions and options and groups and methods they are all used to influence the masses to do social engineering, but they're used specifically to affect and influence government policy, to influence the education that people receive in the school system, university level, the public school, all of it, private. It is used for influencing the media and what people are exposed to, what ideas and concepts and news that they come across. These things are used for social engineering writ large. And all of these are the methods that are used. It's not just governments and states. It is also corporations and foundations and these different groups as well. And so if this is truly how the elitists behind the scenes are influencing society, then what are the potential threats to these methods of influence and these institutions? Well, that would be something like having a strong government or having an organized and or well-educated society where the masses are organized and educated. Something like transparency might be a bit of an issue if you are trying to steer society behind the scenes through a nonprofit. And so these are the threats that you would have to address. If there is a very strong government and it sees that the Rockefeller Foundation is doing something against its interests, then it can easily shut down the Rockefeller Foundation. But if that government is weak and does not have the power to do so and has a lot of influence from the Rockefeller Foundation, then even if an investigation were to come up and even if it were to prove that the Rockefeller Foundation was part of un-American activities, nothing would become of it. And we have historically seen that actually play out, that exact scenario. That's an historic scenario. It's not just a make-believe one here. And so that is a threat if you did get an actual strong government. And it's the same with the masses. This correlates to the very first thing that I brought up, that the problem for 
an elitist point of view for controlling the race is that the masses would rise up. But the only way that the masses would truly rebel, would really rise up, would be if they were organized and or if they were well-educated. If they're just organized, then you can probably steer them pretty well by educating them the way that you want them to be educated and control the social movements and the things going on. And then if they rise up, they're rising up and overthrowing one aspect of what you are doing, and you are providing them with the solution to jump right into to combat that first aspect. And so you can kind of get away with this. And same if they are well-educated but not very well-organized, where they know that their government is corrupt. They know that there are these elitists behind the scenes trying to push certain agendas. They know that corporations are steering society and filtering what they are seeing and hearing and, in the end, what they are thinking. People can know this stuff, and they can understand it, and they can have the philosophy behind it. But if they're not organized, they're not really a very large threat. They have to be taking action and doing so in a corporate manner to really have much of an impact on your control system that you've set up. So you don't want them to be organized and well-educated. Ideally, you don't want them to be either one, but if they are one or the other, you want it to be steered in your direction. And that is the technique we'll get into next. But the final threat that I want to mention is transparency. That is a very big threat. If people can actually see what you're doing behind the scenes, they can see where all the money is going. If you actually had hard money that was tracked and traced and monitored on something like a public blockchain, and you could see where every single dollar for, we'll continue using the evil Rockefeller Foundation as our example, but if you could see every dollar that goes to the Rockefeller Foundation, where every dollar goes from them, what they are spending it on, who they are giving it to, that level of transparency would spell disaster for trying to achieve things behind the scenes, or it could spell disaster at least. And so these are the main threats that would come against the types of institutions and the methods of influence that elitists will use for social engineering and steering the public. The solution for this is to use all these problems to your advantage. So if you can get ahead of the game and you can steer these different aspects towards your own agenda, then you can actually use them to your own advantage, such as having a strong government If you are in control of that strong government and have a lot of influence there and you have created measures to keep the general public from having a lot of control over that strong government, then you have a huge resource of government money and you have policy that gives you funding that keeps out your competition that protects you from liabilities. You can have legitimacy that you get from having this strong government that you are being given support from. You can have power and all these things from a strong government, but that is only if that strong government is in your hands. If that strong government ever goes against you, then that becomes a very big problem. So you want to get ahead of that and make sure that if there's going to be a strong government, you are the one that has the control and the influence, or at least your ideologies are well represented in that government And therefore, the way that government is oriented towards you and your goals is going to be oriented towards your own ideology and philosophy as well and won't conflict with that. Now, what is the other threat that I mentioned? An organized and educated society, the masses being organized and educated. Well, if you steer the social movements and the organization that develops, then you can have seemingly legitimate grassroots movements that are on board with your ideologies and helping you out and giving you more support and legitimacy. And you look even better than you did before if you are the one that are steering these social movements. And if you make sure that the education of the masses, if it's going to be a high level of education that would otherwise be a threat to you, if you can make sure that this is going to be highly specialized and highly segmented in its approach, then you don't really have to worry about it. The only time that the educated masses are going to be an issue is when they put all the pieces together and they tie everything together and then they see the big picture. But if you are not teaching things like critical thinking and context and how to tie these different subjects in together, and instead you have people highly specialized in one tiny 
minutia of a specific field in a specific setting of, let's say, the sciences, then you're not going to have them tie together all these different forces and ideologies and historical contexts and all these things in order to come to the conclusion that they probably should rise up or they probably should be saying that something is wrong here. They're not even going to think these things because their high level of education is only in that one specific field and only in that one specific context. And they have no context from a broad perspective, tying all of these things together, looking at things like sociology and economics and political theory and philosophy and how all these things come together to create the society that we have and how these work together in the trends that society is going through and the direction that society is heading, they only have one piece of that or a few pieces or a few anecdotes and they don't really put these together. And so again, if you control both the organization of the masses and the education of the masses, then they can be well-educated and they can be well-organized as long as it is within your bounds. Uh, the final thing would be transparency. And the way to combat that and use it to your advantage is to control the information outflow. Look at something like Edward Snowden, for example. The things that he released about the CIA had already been released before by other whistleblowers. And this information had already come out. It had already been demonized as conspiracy theory. And there's no way that that's actually true. And eventually it came out as actually being true. And it came out through Edward Snowden. And if you look into what he specifically released, virtually all of that had been released before by a disparate group of other individuals and whistleblowers. And so it wasn't really new information, but it was confirmation. And I don't know if that was a controlled outflow of information, but it did have that same result. And so it could be looked at as a case study that looks similar to what I'm talking about here. And so the point is that you make sure that you control spin and you spin everything, that you combat whistleblowers and hacktivists and people like this, that you control sensitive data and you keep it segmented and only certain people know certain aspects of it so no one knows the full story, kind of like the education aspect. You do non-disclosure agreements with everyone to make sure that it is less likely that information gets out there. But you also get ahead of the curve. Again, just like all of these other things, you know that at some point, information will get out. And so if you head that off by purposefully making sure that certain information is what gets out, then people feel like they have this level of transparency. They feel like they are really getting to the bottom of things, when in reality, you are only creating this limited hangout where you've only given them this one piece that you feel is okay to get out. And it pushes a certain narrative that you are okay with and that goes along with your agenda. And again, you steer things by getting out in front of them and controlling it. And you are turning the threats against your agenda into tools to help further your agenda. And that's just the way it works. And so if we say that this is the way it works, then Overall, we just have narrowed this down to this dichotomy of you have a philosophy where the elites, the philosopher kings, the technocrats, whatever you want to call them, that these people are better than the masses and they would be the most fit to run society. And on the other side, the threat to that is the masses. It is society who feels like they should have their own personal freedoms and free will and choice, and they don't want to be ruled over by anybody else. And so if they feel like that is happening to a great enough degree and they have the tools in order to do something about it, they will. And that is the threat. So basically, what if the components of government that is run by the masses, or at least is friendly with the masses, what if these components inhibit the plans of us elitists, we'll say, through their influence and combined powers. So you could have, maybe it's the FBI that is actually, you know, we'll call them the good guys, and they actually want true justice. That could be a problem for the elitists, the technocrats behind the scene, the whatever you want to call them. What if you actually had a true investigation that really dug in? What if you got a president elected and he actually put in a cabinet that 
all had the agenda and ideology to truly drain the swamp. Think of Trump if Trump was actually what people thought he was. And what if he didn't put in people like Bolton and Pompeo, but instead put in people like Ron Paul or Scott Horton or Tom Woods or people like this, then that might be a problem for us elitists. And so it's kind of like when you look at religion. I'll use that as the example to phase us into the answer to this, where with religion, religion can be very anti-government. And it can be a problem for government control because people feel like they have a power and authority, a king that is above their own government. And that is who they truly follow. Those are the laws and the moralities that they truly adhere to. And that's not a great thing if you're trying to control people as a government. And so an answer to that can be that you harness religion, that you use that for control, that you dilute it, and that you merge it with the power institutions that are under your control so that you can then get this religion and these religious adherents on board with your methods and such. I recently talked about this on the interview that I did with the Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence podcast, and we talked about how the Romans used this method where they would go into a region that they wanted to control, but the local inhabitants, they had these religions that were often tied to the land and to nature and went against a lot of Roman ways. Well, some uh, I'll tie some of this stuff together, but basically the Romans could come in, they would look at the different tribes that had power in that region. They would side with a few of the tribes that seemed like they would mesh the best with Roman culture, and they would ally with them. They would get those tribes to fight against the other tribes with Roman help, and basically through physical combat take over that way. But also, they would have picked the tribes that had the most dilute form of religion, and they would dilute that even further by corrupting it and corrupting their morality and turning them from loving nature and respecting nature and being one with the land and the way that their original religion was, and basically just changing that to a respect of the land. And yes, we care about it. And yes, it's cool and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But, you know, it's not everything. We have these other aspects of our religion. We have this higher morality that doesn't necessarily have to do with the land. And in the end, you go through a few generations of Romanizing that culture and that religion. And you have these same well, relatives of these same indigenous peoples that are clearing the land for Roman agriculture and monocropping when a few generations ago, that would have been looked at as something where they would have willingly taken on torture and death before even allowing someone else to do this. And then a few generations later, they're the ones doing it themselves. And it's all through this method of diluting and merging and secularizing the religion and molding it with the state. And this is, I guess, fairly analogous to the episode I did about statism being a religion. It's kind of similar to that. We are seeing this happen now in society where science is becoming a religion. It's a pattern that I am working on developing for my book and probably at the end of season three. But we have this pattern in society where you had, let's say, nature as being the main religious aspect and that you look at the Native Americans, for example, in North America are a good example, and they worshipped nature, and all of their gods had to do with nature and animals and trees and plants and these types of things. And so that then kind of morphed into having religion based on human sacrifice and state control, where you have it ended up being the divine right of kings. But even earlier cultures, they would do human sacrifice or they would go to war with others, which basically is human sacrifice to fight for the cause of your religion. Religions were always tied in very strongly. I shouldn't say always. Were often tied in very strongly with ancient cultures. And you often had the leader of the culture. Look at Egypt, for example. Often that leader, that pharaoh, was viewed as a god, as a deity. And then other times, they are viewed as a representative of the deity. And then you get into more modern times where you have divine right of kings, and 
they are just given authority by the deity to be the rulers. And so you have that. And out of that, you have this new religion that then evolves into being statism, as I have described it before, where it's not just the state using the religion, it is the state as the religion. And that's where we are now with patriotism and nationalism and all of these different things that I've talked about before. And that is now phasing into this next evolution of religious practice of scientism, where you can take things like environmentalism and genetics and science and all of these are where people are putting their faith into. That's what people are believing in. These are where these higher purposes and higher powers are coming from. And that appears, at least to me, to be where we are heading as a society. Now, although I don't have time to get into this, hopefully you can see how each one of those aspects of religion could be used, if harnessed and controlled, to control the masses, whether it be uh, the authorities being given authority from the gods and from the religion, or whether it be the state as religion, that's probably the easiest to see, or even science as a religion, and that being used to control the masses. Just trust the science. Come on. And I'm sure you can see how all of these could potentially play out. But I need to get back on track here because I still haven't addressed libertarianism and free markets. And that is where I am here. So as I said, that religion example is just an example of the libertarianism and free markets idea and this concept that I have been trying to lay out here. And so to review, if you have elites that want to run things, the masses are the problem. You then work behind the scenes to steer the masses through corporations, foundations, uh, NGOs, think tanks, things like this, these types of institutions, influence the media, the school system, these types of things. You have these potential threats against this method of strong government, uh, education, transparency, these things. And so what you do is you get in front of that and you do things like controlled information outflow and steering the education system and using a strong state in a way where there is not a lot of influence by the masses on that strong state. And that strong state is fully in support of all of your institutions that you're using behind the scenes. Well, if you want to take that to the next level, what you can do is then just detach. If you get rid of the strength and power of the state, if you get rid of this idea of democracy, then you no longer have to steer these and control these and do it all behind the scenes. You can do whatever you want if you get rid of these threats. You don't have to worry about there being a strong state that comes and messes with all of your plans and everything that you're doing if there isn't a strong state. How do you weaken the state? That is exactly what libertarian philosophy is. It is all about having a weak state that at the most only has the power and the directive to protect people's rights, and that is it. And if that is all the state was, think of how much easier it would be to control and steer society through all these other institutions that are not state-related, that could potentially be kept in check by the state, but hey, there is no state to keep them in check, and that would be wonderful for uh, pushing this agenda, at least. So what you do is you separate the masses from government. And think about how now people view governments as corrupt. Politicians are kind of corrupt and filthy and slimy, and we don't trust them. We trust the experts, not the politicians. And so you add trust in the controlled institutions, and you do this directly and through market mechanisms. So again, we trust the experts. Well, who are the experts? They're the ones involved in these institutions that you're using behind the scenes, dear society, such as the foundations, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or the Rockefeller Foundation, or John Hopkins, or uh, you can look at groups even that are state associated, but not part of a state or government, like the World Health Organization, or the World Bank, or the IMF. And so if you shift the trust from the government to these controlled institutions or these institutions you are using as a method of control, then that can greatly benefit what you're doing. And you can do this directly or even just through market mechanisms. The state is inherently inefficient and ineffective. And so you can use a free market approach and people will always choose, well, shouldn't say always, again, people will typically choose, the vast majority of the time will choose the free market 
corporate option over the government and state option just because it's better and cheaper and why not? And so you can use these market type of mechanisms as well. If you allow freedom, uh, we'll put that in quotes, freedom in quotes, while controlling information and choices, then do you really have true freedom? If we want the freedom to make our own choices, but we don't have all the information related to that choice, then are we really free? What if the only information we are given is just the one side, and that will obviously lead us to one answer, and that is the answer we choose, because out of the information we have, it makes the most sense, and, but we missed out on a lot of other information, and therefore, was our choice really one directed by our free will by weighing multiple sides of an argument? Well, no. And so who controls the markets? Well, theoretically, it is the individuals in the market making purchases, buying and selling things. That is how a market works. But in reality, in today's world, who controls supply and resource allocation? Who controls resources? It's not the individual consumer. It is not the individual consumer that chooses what they want to buy based on what is best for them and their family and their situation. No, they choose what to buy based on marketing and propaganda. That is how society works right now, unfortunately, at least for the majority of what we're referring to as the masses. Now, who controls the levers of influence? It's not necessarily the government, although governments do. It's mainly corporations. It's think tanks. It's foundations. Uh, that is who controls these levers of influence. And who controls these institutions? Well, again, it's the elitist pushing a certain agenda. What about the education of the masses? Are people educated in these things? Do they read, for example, Bernays and propaganda? Do they... Are they aware of these things? Do they learn about logical fallacies in middle school and high school to combat uh, propaganda and marketing? No, of course not. So if you just magically made free markets a thing, all of a sudden the government has no power over markets. We have this, let's say a minarchist utopia that was established where all the government did was protect people's freedoms and that is it. Then they stayed out of people's business. They didn't mess with people. They didn't try to control things. They had no influence in the economy or at least not a great influence. And we had truly free markets. Who would be in control of these markets and of society? I would argue that because the masses are not educated and organized and because people have been trained and propagandized and indoctrinated into following and trusting certain institutions and certain philosophies and ideologies, I would argue that we would not end up with the libertarian ideal utopia that people want. We would not have anarcho-capitalism. We would have technocracy. That is exactly what we would have. We would have the experts in control, experts out of the corporate realm, out of these think tanks and corporations, these unelected government institutions. These would be the people in control of everything, steering things through the methods that I've already listed, mainly through propaganda and things like this, controlling the masses through social engineering. You get into genetics as well, uh, whenever you can actually drug the public and you get into the idea of Soma, for example, from Brave New World, where if the masses are always happy, then they, of course, won't rebel because they're happy. They're content. They have everything they need. The experts are in charge and in control. It's the computers. The algorithms are making the decisions. It's unbiased. It's objective. It's obviously going to be what's best for all of us. And we have everything we need. We are happy. We are fully entertained. Look at, you know, we have free access to streaming millions of different shows and movies, and they're all great, and we can all do whatever we want. And isn't this a wonderful society? And basically, you end up with a brave new world. You end up with technocrats in charge, getting whatever they want, controlling the masses through social engineering and propaganda and everything else, all through using the philosophy of libertarianism and free markets. And so if you can push libertarianism, free markets, anarcho-capitalism, but you can do that in a setting where you have all these levers of control and influence over society, then that actually creates the technocracy instead of creating Ancapistan. And so that is why, personally, I promote agorism. I promote taking individual action with your own life, with those that are locally connected to you, that voluntarily want to follow some of the same ideologies, have some influence on society. Yes, try to influence your family, your friends, the people around you. Yes, but I, I don't agree with the philosophy of beating them over the head and getting extreme and getting in their face. 
because I don't think that works. And as I get into season three, I'll talk about some of these uh, methods and how to push certain movements and certain things like that and using the strategy that comes actually out of the New Testament of the Bible. And the original first Christians, they were in a very similar predicament. And what they did, the methods they used, ended up with Christianity controlling the world 100 years later. And so I would say that's fairly effective. Now, we can make plenty of arguments about Christianity being corrupted and the institutional church being a force for evil and blah, blah, blah. But what I would like to focus on is how did this originally start and how were these methods used to take a philosophy and ideology of free will and voluntarism and love and peace and spread that to the entire world? How in the world did that happen? because I would say that's some pretty valuable information. And so I'll get into that in season three because it, it's the same thing. It's just a different application. It's a different historical context. So that wraps up everything that I wanted to hit on for this episode. I know it was fairly brief. I could have gotten a lot more into a lot of those different topics and subjects and those arguments, but I am going to call this episode closed. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you, especially to the patrons who are giving money to support this podcast. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you for those of you who have left ratings or reviews. I have not checked that recently, so if there are new ones that I haven't seen, then I will call you out on the next episode after I check that. Any questions or comments or feedback, feel free to send me a message or email me. Email is ideal, but also you can send me a message on Twitter or Patreon or on the website, whatever you want to do. All of those links are in the show notes. Also, if you are recently a crypto millionaire, since cryptocurrencies are going through the roof, feel free to send me some. I've got some addresses listed there. And if you do support the show via cryptocurrency, let me know so I can make sure that you get the perks that the Patreon subscribers get as well. And those will be ones that I will have to manually give you, but I want to do that. So let me know. And with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.